The Old Testament reading today comes from Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out from his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with a kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall, pray, or shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth shall, or will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On that day the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples, the nations shall acquire inquire of him, and his dwelling shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel reading is from Matthew uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able, to, able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. This is our second week of Advent, this time of waiting and anticipation, this time of thinking about what this birth of the child actually means for all of us as a congregation. And when we have talked in the past of this time of waiting and anticipation, there have been years for me where that waiting was like a time of endurance, that I can't wait for this to be over. Just like, you know, I'm just, waiting feels unproductive. 
And I've always just tried to get through the waiting to the thing that we're either celebrating, we're thinking about, we're rejoicing over the, the more active and interesting part of what the season is all about. This year, um, I was talking to a friend and this friend was just talking about the activity part of Advent. And so I've been thinking a lot more of how Advent really is an activity of sorts. It's us waiting, but this active waiting. And so I've been trying to lean into what does it mean for us to have an active waiting and uh, just thinking in terms of active hope. And what would it be if with each of these weeks, as we continue to add light to the Advent wreath and the light continues to grow brighter and brighter, that we're practicing each of these elements every week. And so I've been thinking about like really trying to lean into the activity and making sure that Advent isn't a time of escape. We have a habit, like some of us will escape into the bouncy house part of Christmas, right? All the glitter and fun and shiny. And then others of us escape out of Christmas, just waiting, just waiting for it to be over. Just give me January 2nd, right? Like, cause it's awkward and it's hard. And so I've been thinking, what is it if we actively wait and if Advent becomes an invitation for us to actively be present, be present in just what is. Good, bad, hard, easy, lovely, and the mixture of all of those that show up at the same time. And so how do we do that kind of Advent? Well, today we are, look, we're on our second week of Advent, right? So we've done peace and today is hope. And I think this is such a good time for us. We can identify with and learn from people of the past because they too have had to have hope in extended periods of waiting. And so what can we learn from them as we come up and see them? And part of it is contextual, especially as we're looking all the way back to Isaiah. And so there's an immediate context, which of course we're gonna talk about because I can't help it. So we're gonna talk about the immediate context of Isaiah. But it's, it's more than that. It's the fact that hope is possible in what Isaiah says to those people at that time because contextually, they're connected to a very long story of God. That their hope is not a thin hope that sometimes looks really cute, right? The I hope, I hope, I hope kind of hope. It's not that. It's a thick, deeply rooted, serious hope based on knowing. And knowing because there's a big, long story of God and based on the knowing of what God's character is like and that God's people are participating in this story with God. So we are going to look at context, but that's where I'm getting at is how can we practice in Advent? How can we actively lean into practicing what that hope is all about? Now this year during Advent, all of our passages are coming out of the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah is a book of complex bringing together of passages. It is a book that is full of poetry and prose, or people would say oracles and narratives. And we have to be very mindful about what we're reading and what style of literature it is that we're reading because it helps us to interpret 
better what the text is actually saying. The person of Isaiah, the historical figure of Isaiah is very interesting. He is different than his, um, the other colleagues he had at the time. So Micah was a contemporary of his for a very short amount of time. We could look slightly earlier than Isaiah. We get um, Hosea and Amos, all of those guys, Hosea, Amos, Micah, they're all from small villages out in the hillsides. Hosea, we don't even know where he's from. Amos, we know, Micah, we know. And their geography, like their village context gave them a lot of the imagery that they used in their writing and in their oracles. Isaiah is different. Isaiah is an urban boy. And I know some of you, and I know some of you grew up out in the suburbs or even further out in rural areas. And you know your context, the type of village, town that you grew up in will influence you very differently than when you live in a city like Philadelphia. Now, this modern urban suburban is not exactly parallel to ancient times, but at least you get the, uh, you understand that the context changes what you do. And so Isaiah, as an urban guy, he is from Jerusalem, which even more so is going to shape the way that he writes and addresses people who are in power. I mean, Jerusalem, think about it. Jerusalem has the palace and the temple on one of the highest hills, always visible, always present. There is something about Jerusalem that is representing the national hope of Israel. And it's right in Isaiah's eyesight at all times. And it changes the way that he writes and it influences the vocabulary that he uses. Okay, so that's Isaiah, the writer of our passage. So let's look at the context of the nation at this point. So the southern kingdom of Judah, if we look at actually um, the very beginning of Isaiah, it says Isaiah, this person, at least initially was teaching during the time of Uzziah, Amos, or uh, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. This is this small, the beginning part when Isaiah is first writing, there's a small window when the southern kingdom of Judah is actually flourishing. It's a small window just prior to Assyria getting really big and stomping all over the, the local kingdoms. And at this time, this is during Uzziah's reign, the Israelites, the people in the southern kingdom of Judah, they had very successful agriculture. They had a standing army, so they had a significant army. They had influence. It wasn't empire-type influence, but it was a local influence that meant that they went out, they controlled trade routes, and they could influence the people groups who were around them. And so it looks great, it looks grand initially, but the role of the Hebrew prophet is to hold up a mirror to the face of the people and say, you think the reality you're living in is that everything is great and grand, and I'm going to show you God's version of the reality you're living in. And Isaiah chapter one says, this body, God's people, is weak, 
It is full of infection. It is bruised. It is decomposing. It is nothing the way that God has designed it to be. In Isaiah chapter 6, we get the story of Uzziah who dies. And right as he dies, this window of flourishing closes. And it's at this time that Assyria becomes a massive threat for the southern kingdom of Judah. And so the whole rest of the book is in this threat, in this shadow of the Assyrian kingdom that is coming to demolish the people. All of this, the fact that Isaiah grows up in Jerusalem, the fact that things initially look great, but then there's a threat that is coming, all of this influences the way that Isaiah writes. And Isaiah's vocabulary, it just holds on to the idea that God is on the throne. Yahweh rules, Yahweh reigns. And Isaiah shapes that imagery and that concept and that truth throughout the entirety of the book. Now, this idea that God reigns, this is probably one of the oldest Israelite assertions, theological assertions. And if you've been through story of the Bible, I'd invite you to kind of like think through how you would see that. Because we could go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And the fact that God rests on the seventh day is a declaration of kingship over an empire. That just happens to be the whole world. In Genesis chapter 2, we get the design of the garden, and it ends up looking like a tabernacle design of which God is present there. Deuteronomy, of course, claims the same thing. God is the one who reigns. In the book of Samuel, when the Israelites are asking for a king, God tells Samuel, Samuel, they're not, it's not you that they're rejecting. They're rejecting me as their proper king. Right? And then we get the prophets who time and time again keep talking about what is a proper human king over a kingdom that God himself is the one who is supposed to be ruling over. So we get vocabulary like what we're going to see in Isaiah, where Isaiah says, if it is true that Yahweh reigns, that means that should influence the actions of the king who sits on the throne. And that should influence both domestic and international activity of the king. And the one who reigns, who can actually reign on behalf of God, is the one who brings about God's type of righteousness and justice and one who is unfailing in his trust of Yahweh. So Isaiah begins to develop a lot of these themes. Okay, so we're coming, we're closer to our passage here except we are in Isaiah 11, and this passage is actually connected all the way back to chapter 10. So let me get you caught up in this story of what's going on. And I just didn't print the entirety of chapter 10, but this would be a really good like homework. Go home and read it because it's really quite incredible. It starts with Assyria as the massive threat that it is. And as Assyria comes out of their boundaries, Assyria is um, mocking the different kingdoms that cannot stand before Assyria. So Assyria is just swallowing up 
all of these kingdoms. And as it does so, it laughs in the face of these kingdoms and then turns to mock Israel and Judah in particular, saying there is no way that you are ever going to be able to stand against me. It is full of poetry, of imagery, of metaphor. It's incredible in the extent of the arrogance of Assyria. And then right in the middle of the chapter, you get this clash where God shows up and in this, well, in my imagination, it's this great booming massive voice that confronts Assyria and is like, you're relying on your own haughtiness. You think this is your strength through which you're doing it. You are actually my tool. I am the one who's wielding you. You know, it's great, do, 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 it's great. Then the end of chapter 10, we get a travel log. And this is one of those, if you actually see on a map where all of the different cities are that's listed, it makes your heart speed up a little bit and your breath gets a little bit shorter and you feel nervous. Because you get this idea that Assyria is coming out of their boundary and is coming out of the north and is coming closer. And then the book of Isaiah names cities. It is here, and then they're here, and then they're here, and then they're here, and then they come all the way up to this small hill that is just barely north of the city of Jerusalem, Nob, and from there they stand overlooking Jerusalem. You're like, ah. I mean, it's just, it's terrifying in the anticipation of this great enemy that is here. And it makes you go, after darkness, light? Where's, where is the hope? Right? In the, in the light of such terrifying reality, where is hope? Well, hope begins to show up at the end of chapter 10. Because the last verses are, God comes wielding an axe and takes off all the tops of the trees. So speaking of the arrogant leaders, those who think they are controlling the rest of the world. And then God goes through the thickets and weeds out everything that is messy, that is taking over. So you get this idea that God shows up for his people. Before they get clobbered by the Assyrians, God shows up and takes the haughty down to size. And then we get Isaiah 11.1. And this is where I think the verse just reverberates a little bit stronger when put in context. Because as God has chopped down the enemies, the trees of the enemies, we get, and a shoot shall come up from the stump of Jesse. You hear the, the connection in the metaphors, we're just continuing the story that was started for us. And in good Hebrew poetry form, we have the same idea communicated in two different ways. And so we have a shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse and a branch that grows out of his roots. And the idea is that which looked dead, that which looked hopeless, or that which was out of sight, if we use the root analogy, that which didn't seem was there is actually full of life and will be animated by God and there will be growth. And that possibility 
of a shoot that comes up, of a branch that grows, of life still in the roots. It's that possibility that brings about hope. And then we get in verse two, and if you were to count the word that is repeated the most often in verse two, because good Hebrew poetry, again, will repeat and repeat and repeat the word that you should be paying attention to. You will see that it's the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. This spirit of the Lord is now going to rest on the one who is the shoot from the stump of Jesse, right? And because we are resurrection and all spring and summer we did this series through the book of Acts, is there a part of you maybe hopefully that's going, this is the same spirit we've been talking about. This spirit who is going to rest on this branch is the spirit who sat, and sat on and motivated Jesus, is the spirit poured out on the church. It's the same spirit. We're just seeing the spirit listed here. And so this branch, of course, right? This branch is a human. This is the king who is going to sit on the throne of David. And so what are the actions of this person motivated by and influenced by God's spirit. Well, verses three through five are the actions of this king. And what is it that this king does? Well, he doesn't rule by his own intuition or by sight. He rules based on God's design and God's teaching and God's version of righteousness and justice. And so what is the effect? of such a person, such a king who can realize in reality, in the tangible way, how God would rule over his kingdom. Well, then we get verses six through nine. And in good hyperbole of good prophetic poetry, it is this impossible outcome where creation is redone and remade where carnivores become herbivores, where all violence goes away. For people of Isaiah's day who were very intimately connected to the land, who intimately knew how to read the land and they knew and understand the animals of their land, this passage, these verses must be the impossible promise of hope for them. It can't be. But it points towards, but this is God's design. This is what God's outcome is going to be. When God's rule on earth is actualized, this is what it looks like. It's Edenic. It is how the garden was designed to be before it all got broken. This is what God's been aiming for. How do you know? Because he has a very long history of doing such things. And then we get towards the end and you see in verse nine, they will not hurt or destroy on my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, which is all encompassing. And on that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples. 
In other words, if we look from beginning to end in our passage, we see initially a shoot, like the smallest glimmer of something growing. And by the end, growth has happened and this shoot has become a standard. One who stands tall, who becomes visible to all nations of what it is that God has done and is in the business of doing. And that signal is for everyone. So initially, the very next verses that aren't listed talks about how this one, this promised king is going to gather God's people from all corners of the earth and everyone will come up to Jerusalem. But then it includes everyone, even the Gentiles get to come up as well because they will recognize the goodness and the righteousness of God. So in a passage like this, uh, where we become very accustomed to reading this during Advent, um, so much so that when I teach classes on the prophets and I point out words like or Isaiah 11.1, 1, I'm like, who is Isaiah talking about? And everyone says, Jesus. Like, hmm, sort of. So let me tell you, how, this is how I would explain it, right? Isaiah, in his time and context, is talking about the threat of Assyria, of what is coming, and the fact that God promises to continue to put someone on the throne of David, and God is looking for someone who is righteous and who is just. And the hope in this passage in Isaiah is an animating hope. It is one that is supposed to change people's behavior and anchor them deeper into a trust of who God is and what God is going to do. You could say in the context of Isaiah itself, this is somewhat fulfilled a little bit, a shade or a shadow in Hezekiah who comes next and is that kind of righteous king. But then we have the gospel writers. And the gospel writers look back at the promise of Isaiah and they're like, oh, we so didn't know how good it was going to be. We thought it was fulfilled. It's actually fulfilled. In the birth of this baby, this one who also looks as non-influential as a tiny little shoot but is going to come out with such power. And John the Baptist in the passage that we read, John the Baptist is the one who points to Jesus, to the birth of that child and says, and now the kingdom of heaven is here. And that's the person, Jesus, who is sitting on the throne. So he comes in a line of people who have sat on the throne of David, but he's going to be the last and final and most perfect one initiating the kingdom being animated by the Spirit of God. But that's not it either. Because over here in the book of Acts, Acts goes, Jesus came, died, initiated the kingdom of God, resurrected, and the spirit that animated him, that made him the perfect example of a king ruling God's kingdom is now being poured out on the rest of the church. And it is supposed to be changing their actions so that they too are realizing the kingdom of God in the here and now in a very tangible way. 
Paul, in the Advent reading that we read, Paul is going to go, okay, Isaiah, I see you. I see that promise you gave. And it was actually realized through Jesus, who is all part of that story. But because of the Holy Spirit being poured out is also going to give hope to the Gentiles. And then it's us. Right? And we, in the modern day, we can read through Paul and Acts and then look through the lens of the gospel and we look all the way back to Isaiah. Isaiah is not talking directly here, but the promise that Isaiah gave actualized as a shadow initially, fully actualized in this great crescendo, musical crescendo of the gospels is still true. But it's true on the fact that we also know the story of Acts and Paul, that Gentiles, that the modern church is animated by the same spirit. And so the way that the true king that sits on God's throne is realizing righteousness and justice is the same way that the church now, imbued by the Holy Spirit, is supposed to behave as well. And so how does even understanding the depth and the richness of the story help us this year in Advent exercise hope? What would it mean to be people of the branch? What would it mean if we were connected to that life of the branch coming out of the stump of Jesse and we start actualizing things the same way that the king does? There's part of me that thinks, wouldn't it look like Emmanuel? Like what we do in serving people, our neighbors in Center City, wouldn't it look like providing for the Afghan family that our church has helped to host? Wouldn't it look like those of you who are getting involved in fostering in the short term kids who need to be fostered? Wouldn't it look like those of you in our community who are working against violence in the city of Philadelphia? Wouldn't it, those are the things that start to say this kingdom of God that is here on earth. This kingdom is a kingdom of hope. And we can lean into that. And we can actually practice during Advent the verb adventing, right? We're, we're not just waiting and enduring until it goes away. We're exercising a muscle. And this week, we're exercising a muscle of hope. And what does it look like? I would like to draw your attention to this quote that I ran across and I love, and I've been thinking about quite a bit because in the last few months, as things have been weird in my own life, I have found myself doing lots of, <sighs> you get that feeling. So, so in this, uh, this spoke really nicely to me. So this is the quote that's on page three in the bulletin. Before Advent is a word, it's a sigh, a voice crying, a mood, and never more deeply felt than in these troubled months. Advent marks both the exhaustion and the hope of God's people. When the meaning of our lives is expressed in a weary exhalation of ordinary breath and the sharp intake of something greater. This is something like, as I have found myself deeply sighing over the last week, I've gone, ooh, but what is the inhale, 
right? It doesn't matter. I mean, this is a season of sighing. And we should be able to sigh. And we should be able to mourn those that are things that are broken and are not quite right. But what is the inhalation of the next breath? And I wonder if that can't just be hope for us this week. So we are about to come to this table, right? And in the invitation of coming forward, we remember as a community, we remember that God's body was broken for your healing, that God's blood was shed for your redemption and your salvation. And maybe it can be this time that we also remember that because we're coming forward and we're being mindful of the death and resurrection of Jesus, that we live between the Christ is risen and Christ will come again part. And there will be sighs, but there will be deep inhalations of breath. And maybe even as you come forward, it's a moment to actually sigh, but then take in that deep inhale of something that is even better. Will you pray with me? Holy Father, you are good, you are righteous, you are long-suffering, you have been involved in the lives of your people for generations upon generations. The salvation you offer is a personal salvation, and yet it is proof of the way that you have behaved in the lives of people. It is deep proof of the hesed, of the, the, the loyal love um, and compassion that you give. And in this time of Advent, although we eagerly anticipate the birth of a child, may we remember that we're actually practicing what it means to live in your kingdom between the time of your resurrection and the time of your second coming. And may these gifts of peace and of hope and joy and love wrap themselves into our daily experiences in the weeks to come. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.